Uh, Good morning. It would appear as though I'm going to be reading the passage, which is fine. So in your worship folder, also on the screen behind me, is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 14. So listen as God's word is read. Beginning in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drink from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, this is God's word. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, thank you for being here today, uh, as Drew's already mentioned. We're in the middle of a, of a series. We're closing in um, to the end of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Even though this is chapter 10, there's uh, a number of chapters to go. You can sort of feel it, feel the finish, taste the finish. Um, we've been in it for a while, uh, and we'll be in it uh, to the summer, and then in the summertime, taking uh, a few weeks to look at 1 Corinthians 13 in particular. So it'll be a while longer in this book, but what we've seen again and again is Paul's call to the church uh, to love, to pass through what they have continued to struggle with, uh, to look beyond themselves uh, and see that the love of God in Christ for them that defines them now affects the way that they live and make decisions and interact. Uh, And in chapters 8 and 9, which we've been looking at the past few weeks, Paul is calling the Corinthians and us to consider how freedom in the gospel affects our engagement with the so-called weaker brothers. He challenges the Corinthians, again, and us, to think through the implication that even though we're free, for the sake of the gospel, we become slaves. And as Drew mentioned last week, the law of Christ now becomes the measure of our life. I'm free from all, and yet I'm a slave to all. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to look at chapter 10 as we kind of finish this little section of the letter. And so... You'll notice on the opposite page from the passage there an outline. And there's three points, three things we want to take a look at this morning. 
Uh, The first is the wonderful work of God to bring our deliverance from slavery, Israel's deliverance from slavery, I should say, in the Exodus, and, and ours, how their experience mirrors ours, how their freedom mirrors ours. Secondly, the cravings of our hearts that lead us astray lead us astray to the enslavement of idols and how the Old Testament examples serve as warnings both for the Corinthians and for us. And then lastly, our only hope in defeating and, as Paul calls us to in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Our only hope is to cling not to our desires but to the faithfulness of God in Christ. Uh, And so one of the things that we try to do each week especially as we're going systematically through a letter or a book of the Bible, is to give you an idea of the context that the passage serves within the chapter itself, within the letter or the book, and then within the greater scope of the Scriptures and even the history of redemption. So in order to do that, in order to help make sense of chapter 10, I want to go back for a second to the tail end of chapter 9. And I realize if if you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, you can't necessarily reference this, so just listen. Drew read these verses and alluded to them last week. But what Paul's doing is balancing out his freedom in the gospel with this call to self-discipline and self-control, similar to an athlete or a boxer. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, if you just read on, because most of these letters we think, when Paul sent them to a particular church, they would be... Uh, read in front of the church from start to finish all at one sitting. Uh, So they wouldn't be split up necessarily the way we do it. So sometimes it's hard to get a sense of how they're connected. So he says, I discipline my body, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers, or because I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and so forth and so on. Paul is saying something like, look, the freedom we have in Christ is wonderful, but it doesn't mean we then live lackadaisically. It's not so much freedom from as it's freedom for, right? Christian living is a disciplined and a self-controlled lifestyle. But then he seeks to further strengthen his argument by going back to the Old Testament. He says, I want you to know, brothers, look at the first few verses here. Our fathers were all under the cloud All of them passed through the sea. They're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same food, drank the same drink. For Israel, the Exodus was the defining event. It was the event that gave them an identity. It was the event that created them as a people. And everything in their consciousness historically was framed by that. They were formed as a nation. Their identity couldn't be understood apart from God delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. They refer to it over and over in the Psalms. They refer to it again and again throughout the Old Testament as our fathers were rescued from slavery in the land of Egypt, as God brought us out of the land of Egypt. It was what informed them, it was what identified them, it's what defined them. 
their deliverance from slavery, God's work to redeem them, should sound familiar, right? Now, just stop for a moment and consider some of the events that Paul summarizes in a few sentences here. It is remarkable. He does it, he does this sweep of uh, what would take you through the books of Exodus and Numbers. Leviticus is a lot of law and, and can get a little boring to read, not saying you shouldn't read it. Uh, but in Exodus and Numbers, you get, you get these stories of the people in the wilderness again and again, some of the things that happened. Uh, you find them repeating themselves. But Paul summarizes all of this in, in just a couple of verses. But I want you to think about this. He references the glory cloud, which was God's protection for the people from the sun, from wild bandits and animals. Remember, they're in the middle of the desert. He references them passing through the sea, which if you're uh, not familiar to the, the stories in the Old Testament, this is a reference to God's provision of parting the waters of the Red Sea so the people could cross and escape the ensuing Egyptian army. Food and drink. God's provision of manna and water during the years in the wilderness. Because here's the thing, the Hebrews were the slaves of the Egyptian empire, and they were on the cusp of being annihilated systematically through infanticide. You know this. You know the story? They become so numerous, Pharaoh gets this idea, you know what we need to do. He tells all the midwives, kill any males who are born. Right? He wants to systematically get rid of the Hebrews. Eventually, they will not be able to multiply and procreate. That's how I'll take care of the problem. They had no future. They were without hope. But then comes the good news. Just uh, at the end of chapter 2, that's chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, a little bit of chapter 2. You get to the end of chapter 2. Here's the good news. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw and God knew. So, I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to see the last Egyptian chariot sink beneath the waves of the sea? You're on the other side, right? You've walked through the middle of the sea as God has parted them with your children, with what little belongings you could manage to scrape up to take as they basically fled the Egyptians with Moses at the lead. What what must it have been like to see that last chariot sink that final piece of armor float to the surface as all the Egyptians drowned, and everything is quiet, okay? If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, it's a, a cartoon movie, but it's a, it's a great, it's a great re- recasting of the story because there's all this dramatic music, and they're all chasing fire-breathing chariots and Egyptians, and then God parts the sea back, and they all drown, and it's total, totally quiet, And the Israelites are looking around at one another. We're free. We're actually, finally free. We're free at last. Now what do we do? And it's as if Paul is saying, look, you you don't live the Christian life aimlessly as one who's been freed. You don't box as one beating the air, you are disciplined, you keep your body under control, it is a self-controlled, self-disciplined lifestyle, because look at what happened, brothers, to our fathers. They experienced this amazing work of God on their behalf, 
Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased because they were overthrown in the wilderness. Freedom without self-control turns into destruction. Many of the same people who witnessed and experienced the deliverance of the Lord died in the wilderness. They didn't see the promised land. They reveled in their newfound freedom until, as we'll get to in just a moment, their sinful desires got the best of them. And as Paul says, the examples he gives in the following verses are there for our benefit so that we might not do the same thing they did. They experienced the salvation and the deliverance of the Lord firsthand. None of us in this room walked with Jesus. None of us in this room were on the Mount of Calvary. None of us in this room were there that Sunday morning when the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Right? We haven't experienced the, the salvation of the Lord in the same way that the people of Israel did as a, as a, a mini-picture of the greater work of Jesus. And yet, many of them fell prey to idolatry in lots of different forms. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity, let me explain a little further what Paul is doing. You see, and I just said this, but I'm going to say it again, the Exodus was a mini-picture, a mini-version of the ultimate salvation won by Jesus Christ for his people. The Bible teaches that every human being is born a slave to sin, and destined for death. The Hebrews were a slave to the Egyptian empire. But that's a a small picture of the greater problem of humanity. We're all enslaved. But not to the Egyptians, to our sin. But God, through Jesus Christ, rescues a new people of Israel and brings them to a newness of life. And the promised land for us as Christians is being united to Jesus by faith. And in that promised land, a love of obedience is born and the idols of our hearts, just like the idols in the land of Canaan, are to be demolished and replaced by a love supreme. That was the the job of the people when they got into Canaan. Destroy the idols of the peoples around you so that you're not tempted. Of course, Some of you know, many of you know the story. They didn't do that. They fell prey again and again. They didn't learn. But what's fascinating is God didn't give Israel the law. He didn't give them the the discipline of how to live what he expected from them until after he had freed them, right? Salvation and faith always come before obedience and love. God frees the people, and then he gets them out in the desert and then tells them how he expects them to live. And so Paul is helping us even here to see the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is no difference in terms of salvation. It always has been, is now, and always will be by grace alone. It is God's work to redeem and God's work alone. And the apostle is showing the Corinthians That even though they're free in Christ and have been delivered from the slavery of sin through Christ, just like Israel, freedom doesn't result in sloth, it results in self-control. So in verse 6, he goes on, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. The problem for Israel is our problem too. In fact, it is the fundamental human problem. Cravings, desires, that are evil. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about idolatry. You'll see it there under the the second point. The heart wants what the heart wants. And let me just 
small parenthesis for a second. This is such a critical part of Christian growth and change. We long for this. We want that. We we desire for this to be a regular spiritual discipline of the people of Redeemer. Uh, if we as a church can excel and grow in this discipline of idol identification and diagnosis and so forth, uh, it really is part of the way in which God is burning the dross off of us and purifying us. If we learn to do it together, uh, I think he receives much glory as a result. So I want to talk about two things. First, the definition, and then how do we get about this diagnosis? Okay, The heart wants what the heart wants. Why is the uh, statement, or why is that statement true? Well, the question we've got to ask, in light of Paul's examples for us, in verses 6 through 10, is why. We know, you can read the Old Testament, figure out that the Israelites had desires, evil desires, evil cravings. We know what they were, or we at least know the behavior that resulted, but the question is why? Why did they have them? And the short answer is something, better yet, someone had captured the title to their heart. During the course of the incidents, look at them uh, with me. Beginning in verse 7, he says, Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's a reference to the golden calf incident where as Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, the people came to Aaron and said, up, get up, make us gods that we can follow because this guy, Moses, we don't know where he is or what's become of him. We're getting bored, Aaron. And so they put all their gold and stuff together and eventually... They're worshiping this golden calf. They eat and drank and rose up to play. Again, reveling in their freedom. We're free. Let's do whatever we want. Right? Not only that, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is referencing a a story from the book of Numbers where the people had... uh, brought in a a pagan uh, nation, basically taken prostitutes from that nation and gotten involved with them. Uh, The scripture says in in that chapter, the people hoard themselves to the the Midianites. And as a result, God judged them for for uh, for that work. Again, what caused it? Why did they have that desire to indulge? Uh, in that particular sin, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Again, in the book of Numbers, they're complaining. They're impatient. We loathe this food. In Egypt, we ate like this. Out here in the wilderness, we're eating like this. And they get judged as a result. Or grumble, verse 10, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That pretty much refers to the entire episode. Because, go back and read the book of Exodus, read the book of Numbers. It feels like a, uh, feels like a broken record. Again and again, the people are complaining, they're grumbling. And during the course of all of these incidences, what was happening was they were trusting and serving and fearing and delighting in something, someone their own, their own sinful desires, food, what, whatever it is, fill in the blank. 
I mentioned this earlier. Something had captured the title to their heart. What's a title imply? When you have a title, what does that mean about the thing you have a title to? You own it, right? The most basic question God poses to every human heart is, who or what owns you? Me or a substitute me? Idolatry is the only reason we ever do anything wrong because every sin is rooted in what the scriptures refer to as inordinate or over cravings and desires. And we have those for something that motivates us because we're trusting in that thing or that person rather than in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Martin Luther described it this way. He says, an idol is whatever your heart clings to or relies upon for ultimate security. And here's where it gets kind of scary. Idols are idols, precisely because they offer something like salvation. They make promises to us that provide meaning or worth. For example, if money is an idol, it promises you fulfillment and meaning as you, in fact, increase your net, what is it called? Worth. I find that kind of ironic, that as your net worth increases, your value and meaning and worth tend to increase, right? If your heart is trusting in money. But they they also threaten us. They warn us if we don't serve them, our lives are going to be just the opposite. Worthless, meaningless, empty. And so we may start out by asking them to serve us. For example, a reputation as a careful and thorough attorney will result in more clients and thus more money, right? But eventually... Their allure is too strong. They overtake us, they master us, and they force us into their service. And so what started out as me having a, or seeking a good reputation to serve me well, to have more clients and thus make more money to provide for my family, etc., etc., eventually overtakes me, masters me, forces me into its service, so now I become a workaholic in order to make money and keep my reputation intact, and I will do whatever it takes to keep that the way it is. I'm enslaved. Uh, Some of you may remember the uh, person who said uh, what I quote here in uh, point two, the heart wants what the heart wants. I put it in quotes because I didn't say it. Someone else did. It was Woody Allen. So yes, I'm quoting Woody Allen in a sermon. Not exactly the uh, most spiritually astute man who's ever lived. But I think this is a keen insight into the human heart. He said this uh, when the news media discovered that he had uh, cheated on his wife, Mia Farrow, with this young uh, girl. And everybody's outraged. How in the world could you do this? His answer was, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. Right? Which we see that, and that's kind of sick. And it is. But what he doesn't say is, the heart wants what the heart wants because I'm enslaved and ruled by the desires and cravings of my heart. He put a period after the word wants. The heart wants what the heart wants, period. Why did he not continue that statement? He knows the truth, right? Why it's true is more important than the statement itself. And here's the thing. Our lives are always aimed at something, right? Your life, my life, it's... Everyone's life is aimed at something. And this intention is expressed through desires or loves. 
We can't help but love or desire or crave various things. It's who we are. And everyone has ultimate ends or ultimate goals. Whatever your vision of the good life is, the picture of what it looks like for you to flourish and live well, that vision informs your decisions. Now go a little further. Our habits serve to support and direct our loves, our desires. They are the mechanisms by which this vision of the good life gets infused, gets implanted into our hearts. And once they're there, they motivate us and they govern our actions. It's the repeated actions that nurture our love and attachment to a certain vision of the good life. So let me give you an illustration. Let's say I'm 18 years old. My life is aimed at going to college, getting a job that pays relatively well, and eventually settling down with a wife and having children. That's my vision of the good life, right? I have it in front of me. It's motivating me. It's informing my decisions. So I think about college choice and degree program and friendships and potential girlfriends with that future aim in mind, right? This vision of life has been cemented into my heart and mind through watching my parents. Both of them work hard. Maybe both of them went to college. They didn't cheat in school. They try not to cheat on their taxes. They're nice suburban Americans. You guys aren't... You didn't catch the fact I said try to not cheat on their time. Somebody caught that. Man. I too have developed good study habits, not cheating in classes, on time to my part time job. I'm devoted to a local nonprofit where I can earn service hours, and I participate in lots of extracurricular activities. Why? With the result of getting my academic resume looking in such a way that I can get into a good college so that I can get a decent job so that it pays well, eventually find a wife, have kids, and live happily ever after. Right? That's, that's my vision of the good life. And so I'm driven to stay involved in all of those things because my life is aimed at college and a good job and eventually so on and so on. Now, what's the problem with that whole scenario I just laid out? Now, most of you are, well, I can't talk in church, so I'm not going to answer that question. But hopefully, you're all answering the same way. I didn't mention God. I didn't mention faith in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. What is driving or motivating that vision of the good life? Me. The glory of comfort and security and a nice life. So what's your vision of the good life? How do you tell what idols you have or might be tempted to have as you are making these kinds of decisions, as you're thinking through these things for yourself, for your family, whatever station in life you find yourself in, the good rule of thumb is to ask the question, who or what is ruling over me? Right? Who or what owns me? Well, let me give you some some diagnosis questions, and hopefully these are helpful and you can get them later. I don't expect you to write them all down right now, but they're, they're, they are really helpful. We've asked some of them before in sermons or in various contexts within our church, but things like this, what is your greatest nightmare, right? What do you wake up in an absolute cold sweat out of sleep, dreaming about, thinking about? What thing or person, if I failed or I lost it, would cause me to not even want to live anymore? What does my mind go to when I'm free? What preoccupies my thoughts? What do I really want out of life? What would make me the most happy? 
And then what do I rely on for comfort when life gets difficult? Now, just two examples of of case studies, if you will, that will hopefully make sense out of some of this. Now, these may describe you. They may not. One of them describes me. One of them doesn't necessarily. It may at times, but one of them describes me to the T. All right. But to give you an idea of how certain idols manifest themselves in behaviors, because at the end of the day, the way you and I behave, the way we make decisions, the way we react, those are surface behaviors that are telling on, or excuse me, they tell on the idols that are underneath them, right? So first, the idol of approval. I have a craving for people to like me or think well of me. And I'm going to use this word craving because it's a word all of us can relate to. We typically... Think about it in terms of food, right? I'm craving this. I'm craving that. But I have a craving for people to like me. I'll lie to make myself look good. Sometimes little tiny lies. Sometimes big ones. I'll find ways to get recognition. I don't take criticism well at all. In fact, I crumble when someone criticizes me. I I fall apart. I'm undone for a week, right? But on the flip side, I'm, I'm a pretty terrible friend because I don't ever critique my friends because I'm scared to death they'll return it. So what I crave, what I feed on is what? boys, Or if you're a girl or a woman, a girl, Right? I feed on those. I crave them. I need them. Like after running 13 miles, I need water. Right? That's easy, easy for all of you to think. Running 13 miles, craving water, needing water. But how about craving approval and the attaboy pats on the back in the same fashion? Now, another one is the idol of control or security. I have a craving for routine and consistency. I plan ahead. I revel in the plan and the schedule going as I intend. When things or people or events get in the way, I become very inflexible, impatient, and irresponsible. I revel in punctuality, but I demand it of other people too. I completely lose all rational thought when the plan is diverted. To quote Hannibal Smith from the A-Team. You ready? You all know it. I love it when a plan comes together. I love it when a plan. The truth is, though, I don't just love it. I crave it. I need it. Why? Because it is a God I'm serving that has now made demands on me that my life is worthless, meaningless, empty if I'm not on time, if my schedule doesn't work itself out the way I intend for it to. So when my daughter calls me at 10.30 in the morning telling me she's forgot her lunch, telling me she forgot a binder for school, and she expects me to drive from here to her school when I'm in the middle of something very important, like, you know, reading an article on the internet, about the Boston bombings, right? What, what happens to me? I melt. Oh, my gosh, what, what, what am I going to do? How am I supposed to do that? Well, then I've got to go home, and if I go home, I've got to let the dogs out because the dogs aren't going to just let me. And then that sets me behind, and then I've got to drive all the way down there, and then I'm going to be late back for this. It completely falls apart. Why? Because I'm serving that God. Now, lest you and I be tempted to look at Israel or think about these examples and think, I can't believe that happened to them or I can't believe somebody would crave attaboys or crave a plan or a schedule like that. By the way, that's me, right? That's me. 
lest you be a little critical of the Israelites or a person who feeds on approval or control, the Apostle Paul warns us, verse 12, he says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. James in James 1 says it this way, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with... Uh, For God cannot tempt anyone, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our idolatries are the root of our evil cravings and desires. So what hope do we have? Look at verse 13 and verse 14. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, therefore, if that's true, therefore, flee from idolatry. Paul says in verse 13, three words that highlight a hope and a power that you and I have as, it, as we combat idolatry. God is faithful. It is a statement of God's character, which Paul bases on God's past actions in his own life and in the life of others. The call to worship, again, from Psalm 103, and it, it's, it's the, the song 10,000 Reasons is a reflection or a meditation on the psalm. But read that psalm and hear the things that the psalmist says about the character of God. He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He, he heals your diseases. He forgives your iniquity. He, reclaim, he redeems your life from the pit. I mean, all of the amazing things that God does in just a few verses that you get to reflect on. Paul refers in this passage to a story in Numbers 21. Uh, and it, it, it's really an amazing story. The people are traveling through the wilderness. They become impatient. That impatience produces grumbling against the Lord and unbelief and mistrust in God's ability to provide for them. So God sends serpents that bite and kill many of the people. And yet, Moses intercedes on behalf of them and asks God for mercy. And so what does God do in return? He provides a way of escape. He provides a, 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 a healing remedy. And it was a bronze serpent that healed anyone who looked at it when Moses raised it over the people. And it was intended to heal their unbelief. But it didn't. It didn't permanently heal unbelief because the people continued to rebel and complain against the Lord. Ultimately culminating in the people getting exiled from the land. The good news of the gospel, though, is that God has provided another way of escape, another healing agent of unbelief, only this one is final and permanent. In John 3, verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Seeing Jesus lifted up, having lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father in our place, seeing Jesus lifted up, having been unjustly sentenced to death in our place, seeing Jesus lifted up, dying and being raised to new life for us, that, that will heal our hearts of unbelief. 
and idols. And it will empower us to do what Paul says in verse 14. Flee, my beloved, flee. The Apostle John said it in the assurance of pardon. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Flee from idols. God was faithful and is faithful to provide escape, but also endurance. God's faithfulness in Jesus enables us to pray, Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The longer and the deeper our seeing Jesus lifted up, the deeper our trust in the faithfulness of God to provide in Jesus Christ, the greater our ability to endure, the greater our ability to defeat our idols. The promise of the gospel is a new heart with new desires and new cravings. We're not only forgiven, we're being healed. So how does the gospel destroy and heal those two idolatries I highlighted, approval and control? Well, approval. In Christ, I'm eternally approved of. I'm adopted as a son. I'm an heir to an eternal inheritance. And so I can take critique and it not devastate me. I can give critique because I don't crave your approval. I have God's approval. But the second one, in Christ, I'm eternally secure. The faithfulness and sovereign goodness of God become a comfort. And if the plan doesn't all come together, I don't despair. I can learn to relax. God's in control, and he proves his concern and his care in every provision. And so I don't have to crave control. Idolatry is pervasive. It's a very powerful thing that continues to... Destroy continues to attack every human heart, but the gospel of Jesus Christ strips idols of their power. It exposes them as false and empty, and it empowers us to live free and full of love, to serve our neighbors, our city, our world. And so let's pray uh, that God would demolish our idolatries with the power of the gospel. Uh, As Paul says here, God is faithful, therefore you can flee idolatry. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we believe. I help our unbelief. We confess our unbelief to you. We confess how easy it is for us to serve, to worship, to be ruled by, to be owned by created things rather than you, the creator, the gifts rather than the giver of all those gifts. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that because you overcame temptation, because you were faithful, because we see the faithfulness of our Father in providing a way of escape through you, ultimately, in you being lifted up for the sin of the world. We pray that seeing you lifted up would produce in us, being, being freed of that would produce in us a love and an obedience and a desire to see, expose, and destroy the idols of our lives, that we might worship you and you alone, For your glory and your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As I said, the promise of the gospel is, and as we read in the call to worship, the Lord forgives not only all your iniquities in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but he is healing all your diseases. Uh, And a great disease is the the idols of our hearts. Uh, And so as you go, go with the promise that God goes with you. Uh, not in this, not in the glory cloud that he, he went with, with Israel. Uh, but if your faith and your hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes in the power of the Spirit into your heart. 
uh, and is changing you and me from the inside out so that we can change our city and our world from the inside out. Uh, So go with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.